Welcome to Inside the Groove, a podcast about the music of Madonna. I'm your host, Edward Russell, and every episode I'll be taking a well-known Madonna track and telling the story of how it was written and how it was recorded. I'll be using multi-track sessions and demos to break down the creative process and find out how Madonna has been behind some of the greatest pop songs of the last 40 years. Who's That Girl? Original motion picture soundtrack was released on July 21st, 1987, a few weeks ahead of the movie, which was premiered at Times Square in New York on the 6th of August that year. The title track was released as the lead single a month earlier to much success, reaching number one in 10 countries, including the UK and the US. Written with Patrick Leonard, it is, in many respects, the sonic transition between the True Blue era and the Like a Prayer one. A second track, composed by the pair, The Look of Love, could easily fit on Madonna's 1989 album. Two other songs were co-written and co-produced with Stephen Bray and marked the end of the sound that the pair had established since their first record together, Into the Groove, although they had been writing songs with each other for many years before that. Featuring tracks by Scritti Politti and Club Nouveau, the album is a curious collection and its release further delayed Madonna's remix album, You Can Dance, which was originally slated for the end of 1986, but it's an interesting LP and a firm favourite with fans. This is a special episode where I will focus not on one song, but all four tracks from the movie, including non-single Can't Stop. And I have a number of guests who will be contributing too. After all, 16th of August is Madonna's 63rd birthday. And what better way to celebrate than with a look at one of her best-loved eras. So it's kind of like Avengers Assemble, Madonna style. The guys from the MLVC podcast are joining to discuss the movie, whilst the Immaculate podcast are giving their thoughts on the Who's That Girl tour. I also have four very established music artists and Madonna fans who have recorded special covers of songs from this era. Granger Boy, Kavanagh, Bright Light, Bright Light and Darren Hayes. Three of these have not been heard anywhere else. You're getting to hear them for the first time ever. This is such a treat. You may have joined this episode having read about the podcast on Queerty, and I'm joined in discussion with their feature editor, Graham Grimaud, to give his views on the movie, tour and songs. So, for now, sit back, relax, because it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game as we go inside the groove. so excited to let you know that Inside the Groove has just launched its own merchandise store. Starting with some t-shirts, mugs and all the usual stuff, they're really high quality designs inspired by Madonna's own songs and other things that any Madonna fan is going to love. And I mean love, I'm really proud of the work. If you're listening to this podcast at the time it first goes out, then I can let you know that you can get a 25% discount as long as you order more than one item. 
Just use the code 25, all uppercase letters, when you check out, and you'll get that discount. Also, to celebrate Madonna's birthday and this episode, there are two limited edition Who's That Girl inspired t-shirts. Just head to www.insidethegroove.co.uk, click on merchandise, and just buy away. So my memories of the Who's That Cold period are quite clear um, and at the same time distant because I'd become a bit of a mega Madonna fan on release of La Isla Bonita, um, a bit late to the party, although I'd liked her earlier stuff. That's when I bought True Blue and I became, well, utterly obsessed with that album. I loved it. However, that summer, I was 17. I'd started to go clubbing perhaps a year or so earlier than I should have done, but I became obsessed with a lot of the uh, electronic British music that was around and a lot of house music. And the Who's That Girl period sort of passed me by. It was in the charts, and so I knew the songs, but I didn't watch the movie and I didn't go to the tour. I obviously caught up with both of those not long after on home video. And of course, I've retrospectively gone back to that period and I've got lots of facts for you about the movie, the songs and the tour. So rest assured, you're going to get all the full gossip. But now I'm going to introduce you to my first guest, who is uh, Graham Grimoire, features editor, staff writer at Quirty and huge Madonna fan, I believe, yes? I am. I have been a Madonna fan since uh, since the, uh, Evita was one, was my first introduction to Madonna. And then I've sort of since then gone back through her history and followed her since then. And I've been writing about her for Quirity for about eight years. So I'm very steeped in Madonna. Well, that's, see, that's really interesting because my memories of this Who's That Gola era are from being there at the time and how I felt about it. But you would have viewed it retrospectively, I guess. So you probably have a very different sort of connection with that era than I do. Yeah, I kind of explored her catalog backwards, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. it was, I started at Evita and then it was like Ray of Light, music. And then that's when I was like, hey, I want to kind of like go back and see what she was doing before. And um, and Who's That Girl? Just It's always kind of stood out to me as this, this interesting side project that she did at like a really important time in her career. I've always been kind of fascinated by it. Well, it's kind of like a proper multimedia project really in you know before we had such a thing because obviously you've got the movie but you've got the soundtrack she called the tour who's that girl as well as kind of a way of promoting everything else and it's I think she's kind of like the first pop star to ever done that sort of real sort of multimedia crossover it's um it's fascinating she she like packaged it packaged it into this this whole thing, you know, it wasn't just an album. It was a film. It was a tour. It was. Yeah. I mean, people talk about Madonna as being, you know, a, a master of marketing, which she is. And, and I think some people take that almost as an insult because they think that takes away from her musical talent. But, you know, it wouldn't have worked if this music wasn't great. And I'm guessing you you, you love these songs that we're going to talk about. It holds up. Like I, I revisited it uh, before this podcast and really dove, dove into it again. And these songs are still good today. And I don't think... You know, there's a lot of songs from the 80s that belong in the 80s and can stay in the 80s. But I think this, this, these songs are still fun. They're still good to listen to. I think part of the reason is that Madonna's kind of distanced herself from the project. So she didn't put any of the singles on the Immaculate Collection. Uh, okay, she did do Causing a Commotion in Blonde Ambition, but she hasn't really gone back to any of these songs or, 
or that period. I, I wonder if that's because maybe the film wasn't a success. We all know it, you know, it was, it was criticized quite heavily. So maybe right. she's wanted to move away from it. I don't know if that's the case maybe. Yeah. I've wondered that too. Cause she did. Um, I know she brought back. Who's that girl in a recent, I think it was the rebel heart tour. She brought it mm-hmm. back for a couple of shows maybe. But other than that, she really has kind of left it in the past. She doesn't really look back on it. And, um, it's a shame because it's, it is a lot of fun. And I think some of these songs are some of her best songwriting from that era. I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. And they've got some great hooks and it's, they're just, they're good songs. And I wish that she would Mm -hmm. play them again and give them a little bit more love, but she does the same thing with like bedtime stories for some reason. That one gets sort of neglected as well. And, and I've never quite understood why. Well, we can we can explore the reasons. Um, I mean, I want to start by going back to where Madonna was in her career and her life. And I've done my research. Uh, I found out all about how the Who's That Girl project came about. So here we go. 1986 was, of course, an enormous year for her. The True Blue album had sold so well that the accompanying remix album, You Can Dance, was shelved from its intended Christmas release. And instead, a fifth single, La Isla Bonita, was released. Now, its iconic video featured Madonna with short, darker hair, having cut it once filming was complete for her upcoming movie, Slammer. Now, I'm going to stick with La Isla Bonita before we go any further, because I've already said it was, you know, the song that really turned me on. I think Madonna still loves that song today. And it's easy to see why she always reinvents it for her tours and I think this is the versatility of her songs that she she can do that they're so well written and somebody I'm going to play for you now is an artist called Granger Boy who I think a few of you will know um he's he's just a fantastic guy he's got a very distinctive style and he's done a Granger Boy special on one I know it's one of his favorite Madonna songs as well La Isla Bonita here it is performed especially for this podcast by Granger Boy Thank you so much, Simon. So, back to Who's That Girl? Following the success of Desperately Seeking Susan, Madonna's next celluloid venture was a bit of a failure and few studios would touch her when Shanghai Surprise flopped at the box office. But Madonna was still a star in the making and had been enlisted to play the lead role in the Blake Edwards movie Blind Date. However, on hearing that Bruce Willis had been cast as her romantic partner, Madonna declined the movie. 
We can only imagine how differently things could have been had she worked with such an established and experienced director as Blake. But instead, she signed up to a Warner Bros. Sorry, Brothers project called Slammer about a streetwise girl who gets involved in a screwball comedy plot. Having missed out on Blind Date, Madonna insisted on having full control of cast and director and demanded that James Foley, Sean Penn's best man at her wedding, was on board. James had directed the low-budget movie at close range and a few of Madonna's videos, including, of course, Live to Tell. An inexperienced actor working with an inexperienced director was not a recipe for success, but Madonna threw herself into the production and took it very seriously indeed. The movie was shot at the end of 1986 and the beginning of 87. At some point, Madonna wrote a handful of songs for the project. Working with Pat Leonard, she asked him for an upbeat song and a down-tempo one. Deciding that the faster one should be called Who's That Girl, she thought it was a better title for the movie than Slammer and insisted that the film have its name changed. Now, very little is known about the former Donna tracks. A chap I work with called Anthony Bryce, who helps me with research, can normally find a needle in the haystack when it comes to Madonna's recordings, but he turned up next to nothing, and I can't even be sure if the two Stephen Bray tracks featured on the soundtrack were recorded specifically for the project, or whether they were outtakes from previous sessions. But I will tell you what I know about each song, and we're going to start with Causing a Commotion. It's an upbeat electronic dance track, which could happily sit on the True Blue album, or even one of her previous releases. Already an energetic song, it came alive in the opening sequence of the movie, which featured Madonna's character Nikki Finn in comic book form, animated by cartoonist April March. In 2019, Stephen Bray said on Twitter... Happy birthday to causing a commotion. This track was a party from the gate with irresistible guitars from Dan Huff, candy-coated harmonies from Madonna, Nikki Harris and Donna Delory, and a bridge so fun we played it twice. Now, the slightly confusing fact is that Donna Delory didn't actually meet Madonna until rehearsals for the Who's That Girl tour, and it would be fair to assume that the song had already been written and recorded by them. When I interviewed Donna, she confirmed this, but couldn't recall the first studio recording she had with Madonna, so who knows? Well, I'd like to ask Graham, what are your thoughts on this song? <laughs> well, I do love this song. Interestingly, of the four, it's not my favourite. But I do love really? it. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to hang up on you now. <laughs> <laughs> Interview over. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell me why. Why is that? Uh, you know, I thought about it, too, because I was like, why, do, why don't I connect with the song the same way as other people do? And I've never quite been able to figure it out. There are some things that I do like about it. I, the one thing I can say about this song is that Hands down, I think it is one of the best song titles that she has ever come up with, mm -hmm. causing a commotion. I mean, like, you cannot hear the title of that song and not want to play that song. Yeah, There's something about it that just inspires excitement and energy. And I think maybe that's almost what it is, is that when you do play the song, it, for me, it doesn't quite live up to that title. It's, it, it doesn't make me want to move and dance the way some of the other songs on the collection do. And I wish I had a better answer as to why. Maybe I need to like see a therapist about it. Because... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, I think I think it's a great song. I think um, I don't know what to say about it really to sort of justify what you're saying. I kind of get it because um, it, it feels like the end of a particular sound. 
that Madonna was doing. Yes. Um, it's kind of it's it's got the the very synth drums and that and that very twangy synth bass and stuff, which is kind of she didn't do again. Um, when you get onto the Like a Prayer era, it's all very live drums and, and and stuff like that. So it kind of feels like, you know, she's drawing a line under that era. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's not as good as the songs that it kind of is like. It's it's I don't think it's as good as Into the Groove. And of course, she references Into the Groove in the lyrics as well. I think, I don't know, but I think it's maybe the first or definitely one of the first times she kind of is self-referential where she says, get into the groove. And I know she yeah, does that a lot later is. on. Um, yeah, yeah. And, like, no, and that's it's very fun. True. Yeah, it's fun yeah. that this is kind of the, the beginning of that where she had the, she had enough material at this point that she could do that and that people could, it was kind of like a wink to the fans and they could kind of pick up on it. And I do appreciate that about the song. And I will also say, I think the vocals on this track are great. I think actually her vocals on every song on this album are spot on. Like I wish that there were the isolated vocals that we could listen to because I think it would sound incredible. I think she hits it out of the park. Well, someone who is a huge fan of the song is Rod Thomas. Bright light, bright light. Rod, hello and welcome back. Hello. So... I'm going to ask you about your cover version of Causing a Commotion, which you released a few years back. Can you tell me why, how, how did it all happen? Well, the album that I put out, Choreography, was written about dance sequences from my favourite films, uh, mostly from the 80s and 90s, because, you know, like you, we have a love of that uh, period of time. (laughs) Um, So I was thinking of uh, what other songs that didn't directly influence songs on the record but that i loved from films in that period of time and causing a commotion is really one of my favorite madonna songs like full stop mm-hmm. so um around that the choreography album i decided to do three cinematography eps which would be like covering some of my favorite songs from cinema um mm-hmm. so i had to put it in it's just it's such a brilliant song and people forget about it a lot which is um confusing to me because it was a top five hit in the uk I guess she never really talks about it and it wasn't the lead single or the title track to the film. So um, I wanted to give it a bit of love. I think a lot of those 80s songs that didn't make it onto Immaculate Collection do feel like they're sort of second best. Um, But you're right, it's a brilliant... I mean, what do you think of the Who's That Girl soundtrack? There's four Madonna songs on it, but presumably you you love them all. I do, yeah. I think um, it's, it's a better soundtrack than... Desperately Seeking Susan overall, whereas I prefer Desperately Seeking Susan as a film. So I feel like there was there's like an uneven weighting in both of those films. Like if you had Who's That Girl soundtrack with Desperately Seeking Susan, you'd have like the kind of like <laughs> ultimate form of film, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I love the soundtrack. It's, it's such joy. Uh, it's very like, you know, peak 80s, but it's, it's brilliant. It's like pop perfection. So why causing a commotion? You said it's your favorite, but why is it your favorite? The bass that it opens with is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like Into the Groove's cooler rogue cousin, mm-hmm. I think, you know, because they both say Into the Groove. Um, they oh, they share lyrics and Madonna, I think, wanted to give Causing a Commotion away or she wanted to give Into the Groove away, one or the other. Um, and they're obviously written from the same sessions or place or general mm-hmm. world. Um and I just think it's so cool. I think it's like one of her most effortlessly cool songs that doesn't sound like it's trying to be a hit. It's just a really amazing pop song that um, 
that just like does what it does and walks away and you're like wow that was really fun <laughs> so your version which i'm going to play now is brilliant you kind of take it in a different direction and it's got a lot going on you've got guitar in there and a bit of a 90s vibe to some of the beats how did that come about just playing around really i didn't want to try and make it sound exactly like it did because you know it's perfect <laughs> um so to sort of make it sound a bit more like me um, I added in things like the guitars and the sax and um, mm-hmm. some of the the drum sounds that I was using in the the choreography record. So it kind of felt like it still lived in that world. Um, and I actually performed it live. My last show before COVID, I did a show with my dancers in New York and we performed Causing a Commotion live. And it was just really, really fun to do. Um, <laughs> and people loved it, obviously, because it's like a New York-centric Madonna song. So it was like a wild surprise. It was really fun. Okay, well, I'm going to play it now for everybody. Uh, here is Bright Light, Bright Light with Causing a Commotion. I've got the moves, baby. You've got the motion. If we got together, we'd be causing a commotion. I've got the moves, baby. You've got the motion. If we got together, we'd be causing, causing a commotion. for a superb version of Causing a Commotion. On to the next Stephen Bray track, uh, a non-single, and that's Can't Stop. Now, Graham, I have to admit, I'm not really a big fan of this song. We are just going to have to end this interview again <laughs> because I love this one. Um, but I, I, I completely understand actually your feelings because I did feel that way for a long time. It felt like kind of an afterthought, like they tacked this one on because they had to um, and not as much thought went into it. And that could very well be the case, but listening to it again through kind of a, with a little bit of hindsight and, through a modern lens, I think it's it's a good example of just a, a an '80s pop song. Uh, it makes I was list, I was at the the gym the other day and it came on and I found myself actually like bouncing around and like working out a little harder and and having fun with it. Um, I, there's some things I have wondered about the song. You know, it was when you look at the True Blue album, the soundtrack album, or not, I'm not I'm sorry. When you look at the Who's That Girl soundtrack album, you have the first three tracks are mm-hmm. 
are the Madonna songs. And then it kind of delves into these other artists. And then this song comes on the other side of the vinyl. It's second to the last song. It, it's a really weird placement. Mm-hmm. Like it, it kind of doesn't make any sense. Um, but when I looked into it further, I realized, you know, the purpose of the soundtrack album was to promote Madonna, but it was also to promote a lot of her label mates, other people yeah. who were signed on the same label. And I think the reason it kind of got tacked on where it was, was to get people to flip the vinyl over. Because if you put all the Madonna songs on one side, you're not oh, going to yeah. turn it over and listen to the other side. And so it's kind of like, that's what it was used for. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's still a solid song. It does kind of sound a little bit like a leftover track from mm-hmm. True Blue. Um, mm-hmm. And I was thinking like about that, and it could almost be swapped out with a song like Love Makes the World Go Round, which is mm-hmm. the, the, the closing song of that album. I could see this song being in that place, like these two um, songs sort of trading places. I mean, you may be right. It, it may well be a leftover because we know that um, each time – we know that each time you break my heart was a leftover and spotlight was a leftover as well. So I imagine back then that she recorded like she does now, she records a lot of tracks that she doesn't use. So it may, maybe its origin is way back before the, who's that girl period. It could be something that they wrote, you know, in the early eighties. I don't know. Right. It was there. They had it. And then, like I said, they needed something on the second half of the the vinyl to get people to turn it over. And that's, that's where it found its home. (laughs) But I think that ultimately, you know, the song, it, you know, it's, it can be maybe forgettable, but it's, to me, very catchy. And I think it achieves what it's trying to do. You know, it's all it is is an upbeat pop song about falling in love. You know, it makes you want to dance. It's not trying to be anything more than that. Okay. So I'm interested in your thoughts on the movie. Um, I mean, mine are, um, I mean, it's, it's not a great movie, and I don't think that's... Um, uh, a sort of critical opinion. I think it's kind of like, I don't think anyone thinks it's a great movie and I don't think anyone thinks that she's giving a great performance, but I also think it's not a bad movie and it's not a bad performance. It's just kind of okay. And when you think at the time, Madonna was so good with her music and her videos, it was a surprise that the movie didn't live up to the rest of her sort of artistic output. Am I overthinking it? How do you feel about it? <sighs> That's actually interesting. <laughs> That's an interesting take on it. And I actually think that might be right. I think maybe the problem with the film, because I rewatched this film a few nights ago okay. to prepare for this. And because I just, it had been a long time since I'd seen mm-hmm. it. And I just kind of wanted to refresh. And it actually wasn't as bad as I remember it being. Mm-hmm. But I think your point that it doesn't quite live up to everything else that she was doing at that time is a really good point. I think that, and but that's kind of always been the case with her films. They've never quite lived up to her music or her dancing or like the cultural impact that she has. They've always, she's always struggled in that area. Mm-hmm. And I think this is another example of that. However, I will say when I watched it the other night, I, I kind of went into it knowing that it wasn't going to be like the best movie viewing experience. And so I kind of, I invited a really good friend of mine over and we had a bottle of wine and we, mm-hmm. we told each other at the beginning, we're like, okay, this might be very painful, but we're going to do it anyway. And we were both at the end of it, kind of surprised that we had found the film to be entertaining. I mean, you're right. It wasn't great. It wasn't, I don't think anybody probably has this on their list of top 10 favorite films, but it's entertaining. And it's, it's an 80s 
slapstick caper film that, like I've said a few times now, it achieves what it's trying to achieve. Well, one of the things I wanted to achieve when you got in touch and we talked about this being a collaboration with Queerty was to open it up not just to Inside the Groove but to to other Madonna podcasters because we're a community uh, and we all we all respect each other's work uh, and also <laughs> I really love this pair um, and uh, I wanted to get their opinion on the movie because I just knew it was going to make me laugh. Here we are talking to the guys from the MLVC podcast. Hello. Hey, Edward. Thanks for having us. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the guys from MLVC, the Madonna podcast, your place for all things Madonna, Louise, Veronica, Giacconi. This is Stefan. And this is Tony. Edward had asked us to give our opinion on the camp classic madcap screwball Madonna movie, Who's That Girl? And we could not resist because... Who doesn't want to talk about who's that girl? Exactly. We do it all the time. So thank you, Edward, for giving us this outlet. Um, This film just keeps living on, doesn't it? I remember watching, I think, Who's That Girl movie was the first Madonna movie I had ever seen. And I instantaneously fell in love with it. I, I thought it was so wacky and so weird and so not Madonna. And mm-hmm. it was... Very 80s. It's very perfect, like slapstick comedy, screwball comedy that the 80s were were turning out left and right at that time. Yeah, with a bopping soundtrack. Yeah, oh, killer soundtrack. I mean, how could you not love hearing Cody Mundy and 24 Hours and yeah, Scritty Politti, all my <laughs> mid 80s favorites. And yeah, what was funny is that when this came out, um, I think I probably didn't have any like friends I could go and, you know, talk into seeing a movie with Madonna in the theater. But I remember (laughs) I waited a couple of weeks and by the time I was looking to go see it, it was playing in one theater on the other side of town and it was over, you know, the Who's That Girl, you know, film was no longer in theaters. So I had to wait until the year after when it showed up on HBO, literally played every single day and then a VHS copy worn out. So I think that's how a lot of us kind of fell in love with it just from repeated viewings and, you know, becoming familiar with Nikki Finn and her shtick. Yeah, we definitely didn't have a rousing, critical success for Who's That Girl, the movie. For some strange reason, people just did not respond to it. I think they thought the movie was a little too not funny and uh, it didn't fare well for Madonna coming off of the critical bomb known as Shanghai Surprise and she followed up with Who's That Girl and I think that one-two punch sort of sealed the deal with Madonna, quote-unquote Madonna can't act and which is a shame because I think if there wasn't so much attention to Madonna that maybe Who's That Mm. Girl the movie would have been a bit more of an 80s iconic movie. Yeah. Because there was tons of bombs in the 80s that still, to this Absolutely. day, get played. I mean, the, the, her saving grace, though, was that she, you know, had the number one, you know, soundtrack album, Who's That Girl, you know, with four hits on it. And also, she was on the Who's That Girl world tour. So, you know, she was getting seats filled in stadiums, but unfortunately not in movie theaters. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, I love the Who's That Girl. I think the plot is kind of brilliant and genius mm-hmm. that... You know, Nikki's trying to, she wants to clear her name. And I thought that although her accent is not 
from Philadelphia. That is, I don't know what accent she's doing in that movie, but it is, <laughs> it is not a Philadelphia accent. But, it's a uh, tri-state area accent. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it, is, it is not a mayor of Easttown, Del Val accent for sure. <laughs> I actually thought Nikki, the moment when she is talking to Wendy and she does the Southern accent, I was always wishing that she would have just done more of that. Wendy, my God. Well, you just want to be a fit little thing like described. Who is this woman? Lyle, shame on you, honey. I thought you told Wendy. Well, I'm Lyle's cousin, Nikki Suchard. The Atlanta Charles with the three T's. Give us a kiss. Ooh. Ooh, I just love that little thing you're wearing. Lyle, she's got the cutest little thing here. What a cute, teeny, tiny, almost non-existent little thing here out Mangle. I mean, Nikki Finn, the uh, ex-con Southern Belle, that, that has a nice ring to it. And who doesn't love Murray? <laughs> no, no, it's a Patagonian fearless Concour. There are only four of them left in the whole world. What's his name? Hi, baby. Lady, I don't know his name. I'm just delivering him. Where's my seatbelt? How about Murray? How about Murray what? How about Murray the Tiger? There's only four left. Who doesn't love you know all the cast of weird characters that they have in that movie? It's personally I love the cab driver. <laughs> <laughs> no, one one thing that, that I think is really funny is that, you know, this obviously was a big critical bomb and uh, you know you know, the critics love to dig on Madonna for her lack of acting skills in this film. But, you know, I guess this kind of like gave her a kick in the ass to uh, really buckle down and uh, study some acting because, you know, a year later she was on Broadway acting. But I also f- lament the the missed opportunity that Madonna didn't do more sort of yeah. broad, broad comedies like this. I thought that she d- she does comedy really, really well. And Yeah, I, she I, does. And, I would have loved to have seen more of this. And, and she was and she was definitely up for it because at the time, you know, she was up for Blind Date with Bruce mm-hmm. Willis. And the only reason they didn't get that done is because Sean Penn wanted to be in it too. And then there was also Ruthless People, which ended up going to um, Bette Midler. And Madonna, was that was her project for a while. So, yeah, it, it, she definitely wanted to be a comedian and... Also, that same year, she did. Uh, she hosted Saturday Night Live. Right, right. So she was, you know, she was thinking she was the next Lucille Ball. <laughs> mm-hmm. I always challenge people to watch Who's That Girl with an uh, open heart and an open mm-hmm. mind, and embrace Nikki Finn and the madcap comedy that that we. I mean, how can you not love Madonna? in a tutu, shoplifting cassettes. It's so 80s. <laughs> it's that so movie, 80s. It lives in the 80s so much, which is a wonderful time capsule in a very different way than Desperately Seeking Susan is, yeah. where I feel like Desperately Seeking Susan is quintessential 80s New York. Mm-hmm. And although Who's That Girl was set in New York City, it is very not a New York movie. No, it turned New York into a playground. It, it, it's not real, but that's what yeah. we love about it. Griffin Dunn as Loudon, mm-hmm. uh, he's basically having to play straight man opposite M- Madonna's Nikki Finn, which is kind of funny to see. And Yeah, it's almost like a continuation of his role in After Hours, you know, like this hapless, you know, frazzled, you know, man in New York City, except this time Madonna's like, you know, literally sticking a fork in his side every five yeah. seconds. <laughs> 
I'm glad Madonna did that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm glad that we have that movie in existence. I'm glad that it beat got a tour. And, you know, my big request is for the soundtrack to come out to be re-released in a mastered version because we need to turn the volume up on those songs. That's all mm-hmm. I'm saying. But yeah, I think Who's That Girl definitely gets better and better with repeat viewing. Mm-hmm. I encourage everyone, if you have not checked it out, to check it out. Exactly. And also, here's a, a another bonus. If you are find yourself babysitting um, restless children, Who's That Girl works really well. <laughs> I'm telling you, they become like hypnotized because you know it's basically watching a cartoon come to life but yeah much love for who's that girl i'm always happy to talk about it um if anyone wants to slip into our dms and chat about it some more let's do it thanks for having us edward we appreciate it thank you edward we love your show and wish you continued success Nobody scratches. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, I'm, I'm going to watch the movie again, actually, uh, with uh, their new insights in mind. Um, the third track I want to talk about is Look of Love. Look of Love, which is is the big ballad, the the slow tempo collaboration with Patrick Leonard. Um, And I I absolutely adore this song. Um, Graham, please tell me you feel the same. Yeah, well, we finally agree (laughs) on one of the songs here. The Look of Love is... You know, it's it is it's kind of this forgotten Madonna ballad, which is such a shame because I think it actually contains some of her best lyric writing, um, certainly of that time, but maybe just of her career. It's this just haunting song that, about you know regret and disappointment and kind of being stuck between wanting to hang on to something and wanting to let go of it. And what I love about it is Madonna is just she's very vulnerable in the song, which is something you don't get a lot of with Madonna. Mm-hmm. And, but when you do, she nails it. And I think this is, you know, an example of that. It's, it's so just emotional and powerful. And I'd put it up in the same league as like, uh, uh, live to tell or, Oh father, I, or, you know, on the, like a prayer album, I think it could work there. And, you know, another thing that's always kind of baffled me about this song is that it wasn't included I could see why it wouldn't be included in like the Immaculate Collection or something. Mm-hmm. But why wasn't it included on something to remember the ballad collection? Yeah, I because never understood that. I mean, she put the orchestral version of I Want You on that um, as kind of like a bonus track, whereas right. we could have had Look of Love. Um, you know, uh, maybe maybe it's the whole what we were discussing earlier about her wanting to distance herself from this era. Yeah. It possibly has um, connections to Sean Penn, which maybe in 1995 she wasn't feeling she wanted to revisit. I I, I don't know. Maybe she's forgotten it. Has she sung it? Has she sung it since the tour? I don't think so. I looked it up and and I don't think it's ever been performed again since then, which is also baffling. I mean, it's just such a great song. And the other thing about the song that I, that I love is that it almost, you get like an early hint of ray of light in it. Mm-hmm. In, I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Like vocally, you're starting to hear that more mature voice come out, but also lyrically there's that line. Um, 
but there's more to learn from the look in your eyes, that trip around the world, the stars and the sky. To me, that sounds like a lyric off Ray of Light. You could pull that from Ray of Light and it would sound perfect and beautiful. But here she did it 10 years earlier. And, and so it's kind of, for me, it's, it's, it's very interesting to listen to because you're, her artistic journey has always been very fascinating to me and to see her grow. And this is kind of a moment where that growth is happening, but you don't notice it actually until 10 years later. Well, someone else who is a huge fan of that song is Darren Hayes. And um, I approached Darren uh, a short while ago and said, look, you know, you're probably really busy and stuff, but would you be interested in doing a cover? of one of the songs for the podcast and he said who are you <laughs> no he didn't he said i am really busy but if i can do look of love it's one of my all-time favorite madonna songs and i said look only only if you've got time and ah uh, he he did he found time and what he sent me is incredible i'm only going to play you 90 seconds that's all he's offered me i i'm i'm hoping that darren has got plans for this because it's outstanding, and, and thank you for sharing it, Darren. Um, you know, this is for Madonna. This is for her birthday and, and a present for all of us. Here is Darren Hayes with his take on the 1987 single by Madonna, Look of Love. I've had a map laid out from the day I was born But all the roads are blocked and the paper is worn And all the books I've read and the things I know For an exquisite version of Look of Love. I have no idea what his plans are, but the fact that he's only given us 90 seconds means I think we might be hearing more of that in the not-too-distant future. And I'm definitely going to get Darren back on the show. Now, the Who's That Girl World Tour 1987. It began on June the 14th, ended on September the 6th. There were 38 dates across Asia, Europe and North America. Released a home video under the title Ciao Italia, the show began with Open Your Heart and ended with Holiday. It's got some of Madonna's best songs, well, I mean at the time, she only had three albums to choose from, Um, four I guess if you include Who's That Girl itself and we had Causing a Commotion, The Look of Love 
And of course, who's that girl included? Well, if you've ever listened to the Immaculate Podcast, you know that they are the oracle of things Madonna. Um, well, we all are, but, you know, I, I just love the attention to detail. So I got in touch and asked them to give me the facts and the opinions on that tour. So here we hand over to the Immaculate Podcast. Hi, Stephen. In June of 1987, Madonna launched her first world tour. Designed to support her 1986 True Blue album and promote her upcoming film and soundtrack of the same name, the Who's That Girl tour would span three legs and 38 shows, with Madonna performing before sold-out stadiums around the globe. The Madonna of the Who's That Girl tour was a markedly different version than the one who had last graced the stages of North America in 1985. Stronger, sleeker, sexier, and more self-assured, she channeled every ounce of nerve and raw talent within her to dazzle audiences. And that's no small feat, considering the stakes of being a solo female artist playing to crowds of 50,000 plus night after night. On this tour, her energy is unmatched and infectious. And honestly, she looks like she's having the time of her life up on that stage. In my view, the Who's That Girl tour is a prime example of Madonna in transition. Over the previous five years of her career, she had firmly established herself as a powerhouse recording artist. And now, she sought to do the same thing as a live act. The tour serves as her last, and maybe only, traditional rock concert. The guitars are heavy, the bass is booming, the drums hit, and the arrangements and sound of her band were tailor-made for a stadium. Performances like Lucky Star, Papa Don't Preach, and Holiday showcase the rock sensibility here in spades. At the same time, the Who's That Girl Tour was also Madonna's first multimedia concert event, and I would argue that it lays the groundwork for all of her future tours. The tour is divided up into distinct segments, each with their own costumes, messaging, and vibe. Madonna incorporated screen projections throughout the show, and use these projections to make pointed political statements, like encouraging her audience to practice safe sex at the end of Papa Don't Preach. Another precedent the Who's That Girl tour set was the significant reinvention of some of Madonna's biggest hits. This is nowhere more evident than during Into the Groove, where she debuted that killer extended piano version that would be actually released later in 1987 on the You Can Dance album. The Who's That Girl tour was also the first one to feature legendary backing vocalist Donna DeLore and Nikki Harris, who would go on to define Madonna's sound, both live and in the studio, for the better part of the next two decades. To sum it all up, the Who's That Girl tour cemented Madonna as the undisputed queen of pop. Without this tour setting the bar and sketching out the blueprint, we would have never experienced the life-altering transcendence of Blonde Ambition the scandalous titillation of The Girly Show, or the equestrian elegance of Confessions. Madonna had the moves, baby, and the motion, and luckily for all of us, she still can't stop causing a commotion. Thank you, Stephen. So now to the final song, the title track. To some, it's a bit of a rehash of La Isla Bonita, to others, it's one of the best Madonna songs ever. Well, it certainly fared well in the charts. And finally, I've got some facts for you. Madonna has at least spoken a little about this song. 
as has Patrick Leonard, who gave an interview to a book called A Thousand UK Number One Hits. And he said, Madonna rang me up one night and told me she wanted an up-tempo song and a down-tempo song. She came over one night. I had already put down the chorus for a song on cassette. She took it into the back room while I worked on the rest of the lyrics. Soon after, she came out and said, We'll call it Who's That Girl? And of course, as we Madonna fans know, having decided that the song would be called Who's That Girl? She decided that the film name should also change as well. The video was directed by Peter Rosenthal and it didn't promote the film directly. There's a few clips from the movie, but it largely has its own theme. Madonna said of the songs written at the time, I had some very specific ideas in mind, music that would stand on its own as well as support and enhance what was happening on screen. And the only way to make that a reality was to have a hand in writing the tunes myself. The songs aren't necessarily about Nikki or written to be sung by someone like her, but there's a spirit to this music that captures both what the film and the character are about, I think. And this song was nominated for both a Grammy Award and a Golden Globe Award, although it didn't win either. Graham, over to you and get your thoughts on this song. You know, I do, I love this song. It's hard, I mean, you can't not love this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said earlier that it was sort of like an inferior La Isla Bonita kind of song. Well, not in, okay, yeah, I agree it's inferior, but La Isla Bonita is like one of the best pop songs right, of all I time. Mean, exactly. So, you know, even, even most of the Beatles records are inferior to La Isla Bonita. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, yeah, and I was going to say, you know, it's, it, it kind of to me feels like a sequel to that song. And, like, sequels are never as good as the originals. So mm-hmm. it's kind of unfair to, to really compare it too much to that song. Yeah. I think it's, it's an extension of that, that, that same theme and that same story. It's got the tropical thing going on. It's got the Spanish mm-hmm. language going on. Well, I think part of my problem with it, and, and like I said, it's relative. I, you know, I, I think it's great. I just don't think it's quite as good as other Madonna stuff is... The verse is kind of like, I, th- I really like the verse, and then it goes downwards um, for the chorus, or, or rather the verse um, is up a fourth into A major, which is a really strange thing to do. Um, and, and then she sings the verse deeper as well. I actually think that the chorus is wonderful, and it's, it's, it has one of her best lyrics, Who's That Girl? Because it's almost like this call and response thing, where like she's going to sing in the Spanish, and then you can you can respond with the who's that girl line and you mm-hmm. go back and forth. And I, I think it's just really beautiful. And it's a, there's the video of her doing it, I think in the rebel heart tour where yeah. the fans kind of interact with her in that way. And, and I just love that about it. I love that about the song. It's this, I'll tell you an interesting piece of trivia and I don't know if it's true. Um, and I hope someone will contact me and let me know, but apparently early pressings of the single have a slightly different, Spanish part. So um, I think what she actually sings is Quienes Esa Niña, which is, I believe, Spanish for Who's That Girl? But I believe that the earliest pressings, she sang Quienes Esta Niña, which is Who's This Girl? So I don't know if that's true. Um, Well, and it's interesting with this song because I I kind of feel like the Spanish is, is a little gimmicky. But it works. Yeah. And I think it's, it's successful at that. Whereas I think some of her later songs, the gimmick doesn't work quite as well. Like, um, like Spanish Lesson from Hard Candy, for instance, mm-hmm. where it's just not as successful. But here, it's, it's still fresh. And she does it in a way that's, that's fun and that you can sing along with. And that is, 
it's convincing, right? Like it's, yeah, it doesn't yeah, yeah. feel like Madonna pretending to speak Spanish. It feels like she's actually incorporated Spanish into the song in a way that, that feels organic. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. And this leads me to the next goodie, the final goodie I've got for you all to listen to. Now, one of the very best things about this podcast for me is the, the new friendships and relationships that I've built. And some of you will recall the episode I did with um, a British singer called Kavanagh. Well, we've got together several times over the summer, um, have been working on new music and it's great to be so creative with somebody like-minded i mean a lot of the time in the studio we're just talking about madonna um anyway i asked him about doing a cover for this podcast and um joining me on on a version of um who's that girl so last week um kavner and my friend cameron who plays guitar joined me in a studio in london's notting hill and uh, we recorded this and i hope you enjoy it we've we've taken it into a new territory a sort of 90s balearic beat um yeah here you go here's kavner with who's that girl me on production duties, Kavanagh on vocals and Cameron McEwen on guitar. Well, it's been so great. Um, Graham, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, this has been so great. I, you know, I love any opportunity to just geek out about Madonna and especially about an era that doesn't get talked about as much as it should. I think this is one of those eras that it deserves more love than it gets, both from Madonna and from fans. Everybody, we should all 
go back and listen to Who's That Girl and watch the movie and, and get into it because it, it's a lot of fun. Completely agreed. And thank you to my other guests in this episode, the MLVC podcast guys, um, Stephen from the Immaculate Podcast, the the artists that have uh, given their, their time and, and, and brilliant songs, Bright Light, Bright Light, Granger Boy, Darren Hayes, and of course, Kavanaugh. If you're a patron of this podcast, you get to hear those four songs without me nattering over the top of them. And if you want to become a patron, just go to www.insidethegroove.co.uk. Check out my T-shirts while you're there. And of course, this is just a way for you to say thank you. Well, I love doing this podcast and I cannot wait for you to hear the next episode. I'll be back very soon to talk about Madonna's 2000 hit, Don't Tell Me. Don't Tell Me.